So Paul writes these two, excuse me, three verses of Scripture. And as I look at this, I am convinced that if we would allow these words of Scripture to take root in our hearts, it would change everything about who we are in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again because I think this is very important. I am convinced, I am praying, but I am convinced that if we would allow the word of God to take root in our heart, to, to really dig into our heart, to take root in our heart, that it will change everything about who we are in Christ Jesus. The word of God is, is powerful and it's rich and it's profound and it teaches us so much and and I just feel like that as I look at these few verses that Paul has written here, verses 8, 9, and 10, that, that Paul is, is at a place where he's sort of, he sort of labored and he's, he's sort of climbed up out of this place, this place of this sort of deep, dark the, uh, theology where he's talked about us being children of wrath and, and how... Uh, Outside of Christ Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses, and, but he has labored up out of there, and as he's continuing to teach, he is climbing this, this mountain of theology where the summit that he has arrived at is this proclamation that in Christ Jesus, we are made alive. And so there he is, and he's sort of taking in the beauty of all that God is. He's sort of reaping the reward of knowing this truth about who Christ is. Back in the day, I used to love to go backpacking. I say back in the day because today when I go backpacking, it seems more like labor, okay? There's too much that I'm already carrying, if you catch my drift, to put a 60-pound a backpack on these days and climb a mountain. But back in the day, I could do such a thing, and, and, I, and I, I used to love to go backpacking. Well, there was this one day that I was doing a, a pretty severe climb. I was going up out of a valley up to a place called Klingman's Dome in the Smoky Mountains, and then from there I was going to continue on up the Appalachian Trail, and I would ultimately get to a place called Mount LeConte. And so it was on Mount LeConte that I had planned to to camp out, and, and there I would be. And to make matters a little more difficult, there was about 18 to 20 inches of snow on the ground. And so it was beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It was a beautiful thing. And so as, as I'm moving and I'm hiking and I'm climbing this mountain, it became a very long day for me. It was hard work. But, but when I got to the top of Mount LeConte, it was right as the sun was preparing to go down. There was this beautiful sunset because the weather had sort of cleared out and it was very clear. And as I walked over to this overhang and I sort of stood on the rocks at about 6,000 feet, I looked out at what seemed like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of just extraordinary beauty. It was just awesome as I looked at one mountain range after another and the sun was going down and the skies were just filled with color and I couldn't help but just contemplate the goodness and the greatness of God. I couldn't help but just think about the reality that God had created all that was before me and as I looked out over this horizon, 
from, from this, you know, this altitude that I was, I was just sort of taken back at just how beautiful things were. And I remember I just sort of took off my pack and I sat down on that cliff and I just stayed there for, uh, for it seemed like about an hour as the sun just continued to go down. Before I even set up camp, I just had to take it all in. It was a beautiful thing. And I feel that though, as, as Paul is writing to the Ephesians, that's sort of what he's doing. He's reached this sort of climax. He's come to this place where he is, he is just on the top of the world, man. I mean, he is so excited about what, what we have in Christ Jesus, being made alive in Christ Jesus. If we looked at last week, the passage that talks about but God changed everything. You know, here's who we were outside of Christ, but God changed everything and our life is better. But he continues to build upon that and he gets to this place where he just proclaims this beautiful thing that we are made alive in Jesus. And so that's what I, I look at this and I, I think of this as just being so powerful because what we begin to realize as we read through this are some very important truths that are given to us here. Even though I feel like as though Paul is sort of taking this deep breath and he's sort of sighing as he gives us these three verses, it just feels as though Paul is just, man, he's not even done yet. I mean, obviously he's not because we're not through the letter yet, but, but he, is re he is revealing so much to us. Uh, here's the thing, as Paul reaches this sort of pinnacle in, in this chapter so far, uh, he presents to us two things that I think are very interesting. The first one is that we are saved by God's grace, and then the second one is we are saved for a purpose. And so I want us to look at those today as we dive into this text. But the first one is this, that we are saved by God's grace. And it's very obvious that Paul wants us to understand with great clarity what this really means. And and for us as believers, we, we, we may know that, we may understand it, but I believe that grace, specifically God's grace, is one of the most beautiful things that we could wrap our minds around as we think about who God is and what he has accomplished for us. The grace of God uh, could best be understood really as undeserved favor, undeserved favor. So, so God is saving us, and if, this, if we filter salvation through this definition or this understanding of what grace is, this undeserved favor, we begin to, to recognize that salvation must be something that we don't deserve. We have other passages that teach us this truth, that, that the wages of our sin are death, and, and we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that that we don't deserve salvation. What we deserve is eternal separation from God, but... God changes everything, right? So God comes into our life. He woos us with his Holy Spirit. He draws men and women unto himself, and he ultimately saves. And that's the point that the Apostle Paul is making. He's saying, listen, when your mind was as far away from God as it could possibly be, God was thinking about you. What a beautiful truth that is. And so here Paul is is contemplating this, he's, he's thinking about this, and the first thing that Paul reveals to us is the grace of God. I love John Newton uh, was, uh, was, a, was a, a writer of one of the most amazing hymns that we have in our day, Amazing Grace. Most of us here have heard that song, have probably sang it a thousand times in our lifetime, and 
It just really never gets old with us, does it? But John Newton was so overwhelmed by God's grace that he wrote this song, Amazing Grace, and I love the way this song starts off. It says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. How many of you are thankful that Jesus Christ has saved you by his amazing grace, and though you were once lost, you are now found and can see, amen? Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about, the grace of God? And so Paul here, he's going to present this to us in these few verses here, verses eight and nine. He says this, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So by grace, you have been saved. Now here's the thing. In case we're beginning to think that we had some small part in our own salvation, Paul's going to continue on so that we can be crystal clear that salvation was all in God's hands. That it was him who first thought of us. It was him who drew us to himself. It was him who saved us by his grace. Again, filtering it through grace, undeserving favor. We didn't deserve it, but he gave it to us. And so Paul is going to continue as he talks through this truth, helping us understand. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Look at this. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so he says, listen, this is not something you you did. This is not something that you pulled off, and he goes on in verse nine to say, it's not even a result of your works so that no one may boast. He says, listen, no matter how high your moral high ground might be, no matter how good you are as a person, it's not good enough to save you from the trespasses and the sin of your life. He says, it's not good enough. He says, not only is it that your moral high ground isn't good enough, but also your good works aren't good enough. And so he's very clear, if we're, if we're thinking at all that we had something to do with this, if we, if we feel like at the end of our life we, we sort of have these scales where we can, we can sort of measure our good deeds versus our bad deeds and we're typically a good person, if we somehow think that maybe that tipped the scale in our favor so that we may have salvation, Paul is making it very clear here that this is not at all the case. He says, it's not your good deeds and it's not who you are as a person that saves you. He clearly lays out for us that it is by God's grace that we are saved. Romans eleven six helps us to understand this a little more clear when it says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basics of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so what Paul says is he's writing to the, to the, uh, to the Roman church, the, the church is gathering in Rome, he says, listen, it is only grace because works had nothing to do with it. And if you bring works into the picture, then it's not God's grace. That means you earn something. And so he's very clear about the reality that we are saved by this undeserving favor that comes from God. God loved us so much that he would send his son to die on the cross that his blood would atone for the forgiveness of our sins and this is a reality that God did for us to be saved. I love what Pascal, a French theologian, once said. Pascal was from the 1600s, and he said this. 
He says grace is indeed, uh, is indeed required to turn a man into a saint, and he who doubts this does not know what either a man or a saint is. I love that because he's saying, basically he says, man, you gotta get a handle on this grace thing. You gotta understand what grace is. And, and if you don't understand grace, you probably don't understand salvation. And if you don't understand that, then, then you probably can't distinguish the difference between a man and a saint. And so he, he throws this sort of fi, uh, 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 philosophical idea out there about grace that is really powerful to sort of wrap our minds around it. So Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, and it's not even a result of your good works. When I was in fourth grade, I don't know how this desire came to be, but in fourth grade, I wanted more than anything else in this world, a dirt bike, I was told by a lot of parents in the first service, thanks a lot for planting that idea in my son's mind, but I'm sorry, this is where we're going. So at fourth grade, I, I wanted a dirt bike. I mean, I, I don't know if I had a friend that had one or I saw one in a showroom, I don't know, but I, I mean, I started begging my parents for a dirt bike. I, I just felt like this is something I, I needed. You ever have, you hear children say, this is something I really need, you know? I felt like it was a great need in my life to have a dirt bike, and, and I'd never ridden one. I just wanted one, and so I remember just begging my parents for a dirt bike, and my dad finally, he says this. He says, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to buy you a dirt bike, but if you save your money, you can buy a dirt bike. Now, I'm fourth grade. I don't have a job, okay, and so as fourth grader, I think about this, but here's what I took away from it. There's hope, right? Because he didn't say no. He said, you can buy it if you save your money. So the next question out of my mind or out of my mouth was, okay, how can I earn the money? And my dad said, I'll tell you what, we want to get your grades up. Apparently they were bad. Uh, I didn't think they were, but he said, we want to get your grades up. So for every A that you make this year, I'll give you $20. And for every B that you make this year, I'll give you 10 and for every C, you don't get anything, and you know what a D and an F is going to bring, right? And so there's going to be severe discipline. There may be even some, you know, something coming out of that bank account. But anyway, there was this so much hope for this, for, for my little mind. I, I just thought, man, this is incredible. And so all year, I did what I could to try to earn the money, and I was getting some 20s, and I was getting some 10s, and I, I was putting this in my... Bank, if I'd been smart enough or better at math, I could have figured out that it would have taken about 13 years of school, you know, to even buy the bike. But I didn't think about that, and I really didn't earn any money in math anyway. So, I mean, I was just plugging along, and, and I was banking that money. And at the end of the year, I will never forget, my dad came in, and he says, well, school's out, it's summer, how much money do you have? And we, we broke open the piggy bank, you know, and we, we counted it up, and it was obvious that I had a zillion years to go, right? And I, just, I was just sitting there thinking about how horrible this was when my dad walked around the corner and he brought around a Kawasaki 75. Woo! For a fourth grader, that was the bomb, I'm telling you. And I'll never forget it because... Uh, you know, I, I realized there was no way that I had earned that. I hadn't done what it was that he had challenged me to do. I hadn't 
put enough away to buy that bike. It was just the goodness of my daddy's heart to go out and, and buy that. I, I didn't have enough to hardly cover the cost of a helmet and pads, which is what my mom really wanted me to have, right? I mean, I, didn't, I hadn't made that much money. I couldn't have done it if I tried, and I tried very hard to earn that motorcycle, but I couldn't do it, and yet my dad came around. Just out of the goodness of his heart, he presented me this motorcycle. I look at this passage, and I, I feel as though Paul is saying, listen, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, you're never going to get there. But God changes everything. Amen? That's one of the most amazing truths to me that we have in Scripture is the, is the truth of grace, the reality that we're saved by it. Not receiving that which we deserve, but receiving just opposite of that. Receiving God's grace, receiving salvation through God's grace. Grace means that God has poured out his favor to those who deserve his wrath. That's what grace is. And so Paul, as he has reached this sort of summit, this pinnacle of, uh, of truth concerning the reality that we have been made alive in Christ, he comes to this conclusion that we need not be patting ourselves on the back because we had nothing to do with it. We have been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, not of our own doing. It is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here's what Paul's been saying. He says, we're sinners who are dead, therefore we lack the ability to save ourselves. He says, we're sinners who are deceived by our own sin, therefore we we, they, we have a lack to, uh, of a desire to even be saved, but he says, but God has changed all of that. By God's grace, we have been saved through faith. And so grace becomes one of those truths that we need to really, truly wrap our minds around. I remember really coming to that conclusion one day, even as a, as a young believer, as I studied the grace of God, just how it was just so overwhelming to me to consider to think that God loved me enough that before my mind was ever on him, he would send his son to walk a life of perfection so that he would be able to go to the cross and it would be on that cross that he would endure one of the most horrible deaths, that his blood would be spilled for the atonement of sin and God did that for me when I didn't even deserve it. And so this is the point that Paul's making. But here's the second thing that Paul's pointing out to us. The second thing he's pointing out to us is that we are saved for a purpose. We are saved for a purpose. Another beautiful truth that Paul says, he says there's a reason that we were created and there is a reason why we were saved. Look at verse 10 with me if you will. He says here in verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now make sure that you get this. Make sure that you understand what Paul's saying. Paul is not in the least bit complaining about being a servant of God. He's not at all saying, 
Well, I see why God saved us. He saved us that he could put us to work for the advancement of his kingdom. He's not at all uh, complaining or venting about this truth. In fact, what the apostle Paul is doing is he is saying this very pleasurably. He is presenting this as one of the most greatest joy-filled truths that there is. And so he says to us in this passage, he says, for we are his workmanship. He's excited about that. He's, He's happy about that. He's proud of that. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he wants us to know that we are to serve God. We are saved for the purpose of doing good works, but it is something that should bring great pleasure to who we are. You know, I love working with my hands. Uh, and, and, and being in ministry, uh, a lot of times it's just conversation and it's studying, things like that. And so on the weekend, I love to get out there and just work hard. I, I don't know what, what it is. It's just something I, I love to do. I'm pretty sure I got this from my dad. But, but at a very early age, I, I want to I kind of share with you what my Saturdays would look like, okay? And I'm talking about a really early age. My Saturdays differed completely from my sister's Saturdays. I want to tell you this, and they're probably listening on live stream at some point, or at least the recording, and they're going to tell you, if, if you had the opportunity to meet them, that this isn't true. But it's entirely and perfectly true, that what I'm about to tell you. But our Saturdays were radically different. You see, on Saturday, my sisters, I had four of them, I'm talking about, that is just that's ridiculous that a guy would have to grow up with four sisters and no brothers, but, but I grew up with four sisters, and on Saturday, they would get up in their pajamas, they would go downstairs, they'd get them a bowl of cereal, and they would watch cartoons till noon, one o'clock. I mean, they just sitting there vegging out, you know, and, 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 and that's, that was their Saturday. Almost every Saturday, just watching cartoons and just chilling out in their pajamas, but not me. My Saturday was different. You see, my dad would come upstairs and say, get up, boy. That's what I got on Saturday. He would say, get up, son. Now, wake up, you know, and it didn't take long. I mean, because you either did it or, you know, the wrath of God, you know, kind of thing. But, but he would say, get up, boy, let's go. And so I would spring out of bed. I would put my clothes on. I'd be downstairs. I'd pass all my sisters laying there eating their bowl of cereal in their pajamas, right, watching cartoons, and I would walk by them, and they just pitied me. They would look at me, and they'd say, oh, poor David. He's got to go out there and work with his daddy. But you see, here's the beautiful thing that they didn't know. And I'm just now sharing this with them, so they're going to learn the secret now. You see, the prize, the prize wasn't the work. The prize was spending time with the daddy. That's what was so beautiful. I'd walk out. Now, I put on a show. I'm pretty sure of that. I'd walk out like, y'all pray for me, right? <laughs> but that was just because I didn't want them joining me and having all the fun, you know? It was, it was one of those things. We would go out, and maybe it was a day in the shop. Sometimes it might be hunting or fishing, but most of the time, most Saturdays were work. We would work in the yard. We'd work in his shop. We'd work on the cars. We'd work on whatever. It was always work, but the reality is, It was quality time with my dad. I longed for Saturdays to come around where I could just hang out with my daddy. And I look at what Paul says here. And Paul says, we are created as his 
workmanship. And I can just sense the pride and the joy that comes from the Apostle Paul as he contemplates this reality that God saved him for a purpose, that he would not just be used for the kingdom of God, but that he would have the pleasure and the honor to go out and to serve God for his kingdom and that he found great pleasure because the prize wasn't the work, the prize was spending time with the Father. What a beautiful truth that the Apostle Paul is teaching us as we look into this. So Paul says, he says, we are his workmanship created for good works. You know, I, I just look at this, and this is just to me, this is just another act of grace. You see, we look at salvation and we say, man, I'm thankful for grace. I look at this and I think Paul is just describing another act of grace that God allows us to participate with him in his kingdom. Beautiful, beautiful passage of scripture here that this is teaching us. God has given us a purpose, and that purpose is that we could be saved by grace through faith to do nothing more pleasurable than to be a part of serving God. Psalms 100 helps us understand this. Psalm 100, verses two and three, it says this, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Now, you would typically think that serving and singing with gladness wouldn't go hand in hand. We, we so often, I mean, it's just part of our culture to sort of reject hard work, isn't it? To, to do something, to, for somebody to call us to task just seems so you know, something like we would, should want to reject. But the, the, the psalmist, he says here, he says, he says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so here we see the word of God teaching us that there is such beauty in just serving the Lord and that this is something that really truly is an act of grace and that we should be filled with joy because of the opportunity that we have to serve the Lord. But here's what I really want you to see, and we're almost done. That there's so much more to what Paul is saying than what I've already told you. Paul is using this word workmanship. And when you really begin to drill down on this word workmanship, it means so much more than what we have already talked about. You see, in the original language, it literally means to make something new out of nothing. And so Paul is saying we have been saved for his workmanship. We've been saved that he would make us into something out of nothing. Now, there's a purpose behind that, and that purpose, he says, is to do good works. But what Paul is describing here as he gives us this truth is he says, man, we've been saved by God's grace. But you see, we've been saved that he would make us his workmanship and so he would talk about this, this idea of this workmanship. And the, the reality is he's really talking about this idea that we are being, being built and molded and shaped into something. And all of this that is being created that's new, that God is responsible for, is all coming out of nothing. Some translations say this, we have been created for God as his masterpiece. It's like it's a piece of art. 
It's like God looks upon our life and he doesn't see just a vessel that he can use. No, he wants to decorate it. He wants to turn it into a masterpiece that as he works on us, as he molds us and shapes us out of nothing, as he creates us into something that is new, it is something that is beautiful, it is something that is glorious, it is something that can bring glory to him that's what we begin to realize is that we, as believers and followers of Christ Jesus, we are called in everything that we do to bring glory to God. Scripture is very clear that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. And so Paul, he says, man, we have been saved to be shaped and molded into something that is so much beautiful. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And so not only is God saving us that we would no longer be children of wrath, not only is God saving us that we would be rescued from hell and that we could have heaven, not only is God rescuing us in those terms, but he is rescuing us that he can turn us into and mold us and shape us into something that is beautiful. And so what Paul is calling us and challenging us to contemplate truly is very powerful, especially in the light of we are saved by grace. Why is it that God would be so merciful toward us? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that God would be so merciful to us, so gracious to us? You know, this is a question that I think I've often pondered, but, you know, if you look in the Scripture, you see that even David, as he wrote the Psalms, he asked the same question. I want to close out this morning with a passage from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, where David is asking this question, as he prays to God, as he calls out to God, he asks this question. He says, what is man that you are so mindful of him? And so God says, or David says, God, why is it, why is it that you would even be thinking about man? Why is it that you would even be contemplating who it is that we are? Why is it that you would be so concerned with us? And so David, he writes these words. He says, why is it that man is man that you are so mindful of him? What is it? What is man that you are so mindful of him? And the son of man that you would care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand and you have put all things at his feet. Why is it that God would care about you? Why do you think that God is so concerned about you and for you? Why is it that God would want to do anything in your life? Michelangelo was once asked a question while he was chiseling away at a large rock. Michelangelo was chiseling away at just this shapeless stone. And somebody came up and asked him, why are you spending so much time chiseling on that rock? And his answer was this, I'm not chiseling away at a rock. 
I'm liberating an angel from this stone. You see, for Michelangelo, he was creating a masterpiece. For Michelangelo, it was more than just chiseling a stone. There was a reason, there was a purpose behind what it was that he was doing. And as he chiseled away the stone, as he chiseled away the imperfections, he beat on that rock and a shape began to take form until ultimately when he was finished, there was something of beauty. God wants to do that in your life. God wants to take your life. And as he has saved you by his grace through faith in Christ Jesus, as he draws you unto himself, he continues to chisel away until your life looks like Jesus. What a beautiful image. What a beautiful truth that Paul is presenting to us in this passage. You know, the more we get to know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the more we should love him. And the more that we begin to understand him, the more we should appreciate the purpose that he has given us. You know, maybe you're here today and you're thinking, well, Pastor David, I don't feel very much like a masterpiece. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, my life just seems more like a wreck than a piece of art. Maybe you're here this morning and all you can consider is your past. And the greatest question that seems to just go over and over through your mind is, why would God want to do anything with my life? Why would God care about me? Why would God want to do anything for me? Maybe that's who you are today. And if that's who you are, I, don't, I can't think of a better passage of Scripture to dive into than what we've just looked at. Where God's word says this, that he cares so deeply for you that he would take you into his care and he would shape and mold you into who he wants you to be, this new creation, this new vessel to be used for his glory. You see, you're thinking... that you've tried everything and nothing has worked. But the reality of the scripture that we've looked at today is this, that you never could do anything about it. But God can change everything. But God wants to do a work in you.